Just before we come again to God's word this evening, let's stand and we will look to the Lord for his help. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we come to thee now. We come in our frailty and in our weakness. We come, O Lord, in all of our inadequacies and we look to thee. We need thy help, O God. We need thy help in the preaching of the word. Thou knowest, O Lord, the the weaknesses. Thou knowest, Lord, how far short we fall of what we ought to be. Lord, as we come to thy word, how ignorant we are. Oh, how simple we are. But, O Lord, this evening we pray that thy Spirit would give light to our eyes. That thy Spirit would give utterance in the preaching. Thy Spirit, O God, would give power in the hearing of thy word. And in all that is done, in all that takes place, in all that is said, we pray, O God, that none would be seen save our Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray, O God, this evening that Christ would be set forth before the very eyes and understanding of men and women and boys and girls, and that they would this very hour come to see their Saviour. O Lord, we pray that Thou would expose the sin of the heart, that Thou, O God, would draw very near to every one, and that Thou would give the very answer that is needed, that Thou, O God, would save those who are outside of Christ, those, who, Lord, who are, who are wallowing in the mire and in the filth of their bondage to sin, that Thou would lift them up out of that miry pit, O Lord, we pray for thy children that struggle with sin and thy children who battle in this weary pilgrimage here below with all that would beset them round about. We pray that to them the gospel of Jesus Christ would be a light unto their path. That thou, O God, would strengthen the heart. That thou would confirm the feeble knees. Lift up, Lord, those arms that hang down. But, O Lord, we just look to thee now. We pray for a moving of the Spirit of God. We pray that this would be no intellectual exercise tonight. That this would not be a word to the mind. That this, O Lord, would not be a word that would appeal to the emotions. But, O God, Thou would give a word that would pierce the soul. Grant it, we pray. O, we plead of Thee, O God that thou would give animating grace tonight, that thou would regenerate some lost sinner, that thou would work in the heart. O Lord, that thou would save by the many or by the few. That is thy work. Help us, O Lord, to do our work. As we preach the word, might thy people pray, and might there be a work done in every heart. Continue with us then, we ask of thee this evening. Forgive us, O Lord, for all of our sins. For we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're turning this evening to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And we will be looking specifically as our text this evening at verse 22. Luke 7 and verse 22. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, 
The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. Last Lord's Day evening, we looked at the problem of sin and death in the world. We saw the misery that is all around us. We saw that misery and how it affects every one of us, the entire race of man brought under the condemnation, brought under the effects of the curse of God. Even nature itself cursed because of man's sin. We saw, I trust with God's help, that Jesus Christ was the substitute for the guilty sinner. He is the substitute for the guilty sinner. And he brought salvation as the solution to the problem of sin. It was that Jesus Christ who became the second Adam, the second man, as it were, that he might do that which the first Adam failed to do. Well, now we move on from the coming of Christ and his great mission in coming to this world to be the representative of his people. And we trust to look this evening as God would enable us and give us utterance and grace and to look at something of what Christ was, what he did while he was here on earth below. John the Baptist, we've been reading of him, he was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was the one that was prophesied of all that would come and would announce the arrival of the Messiah. Well, he did that. He came he preached repentance. He preached that the kingdom of God was at hand. He pointed souls to Christ as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He has prepared the way for the Messiah. And now John is in prison. His ministry is over. Now there's no sense of panic but there is a sense of expectation in John's words that we read of in verse 19. John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? You see, the work of preparation was complete. John had finished his ministry. John's life was about to end. We're not told it directly, but... There's almost a sense in this question that John knew he was finished. And so quite naturally, for one who has spent his entire life preaching of the coming of the, the coming of the Saviour, the coming of the Messiah, quite naturally, he is eagerly looking for the answer to his prayers. And so he sends out, seeking, waiting for the answer. Is this the one? And in effect, what he says to Christ is this. Are you the Messiah? Give it straight. Are you the one that I have said is going to come? Are you the one that has been prophesied of of old? And our text in verse 22, we are told, contains the answer of Jesus to that question. And Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things you have seen and heard, 
How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. We might wonder why he didn't just say yes. But you see, Christ is infinitely more wise than we are. And so our title this evening as we consider this answer of Jesus is this. The Proven Saviour. The Proven Saviour. There are two things to see in this text. The first is this. We see the Saviour recognised. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. Now it's clear from this response of Jesus that he intends this statement to be the answer to the question. He wasn't sidestepping it. This answer was not a red herring. There's no fallacies with Christ. He gives an honest answer. He gives the most honest answer that it was possible to give. He gives the straightest answer possible. The question is, art thou he that should come? And we could sum up his answer in these words. Yes, I am the Messiah. How so? Well, the first thing we see in this answer is that Jesus shows us in these words that the Saviour is recognised in the fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies. There are many that see John's question as an unbelieving question. They say John's faith had failed him. There are many that see him as being impatient. Is there any word? Is there any chance? But I think it's preferable, and it's certainly more charitable, to see John's question as being an anticipating question. You see, John the Baptist knew his Old Testament scriptures. He was well versed in them. He most likely would have known large swathes of the Old Testament by heart, maybe all of it. But he certainly would have been familiar with the words of Isaiah. And in chapter 35 of the book of Isaiah, we read there Isaiah speaking of the coming of the Messiah. He tells the people that Christ will come. He prophesies under the moving of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of God. And this is what he says. Then, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Familiar words. Jesus' answer to John then is an answer that will strengthen his faith. An answer that proves he is the Messiah. It's an answer that says, I am he that should come. And the proof of that is that I am performing the miracles of the Saviour. And those miracles of the Saviour confirm the message of the Saviour. There are, of course, many other Old Testament scriptures which refer to different aspects of Christ's person and his work. We read of his birth in the Old Testament. We read of his death. We read of his resurrection, his ascension. It's all foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. But the answer that Jesus gives here specifically relates to the ministry of the Messiah that the Old Testament prophets had foretold 
while he walked on the earth, while he was clothed with humanity, while he was in his state of humiliation, while he was bearing the sins of his people and taking their place. It's interesting that between the question being asked by John's disciples and Jesus giving the answer, we have this verse 21 in the middle. The disciples come in verse 20 and they say, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And it's as if Jesus turns his back on them. And look what he does instead of answering at that time. And in that same hour, when they've come to ask the question, what he then does is this. He cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. He performed the miracles. And then he turns to them, answering, said unto them, Go your way. You might notice that everything that he says that he does in that passage, in that verse, is in the present tense. He's saying to them, Go your way and tell John what I have just done now before your very eyes. Oh, what, a, what an answer. What an answer. We have these miracles confirming the word. It's also worth noticing here that the actual deeds of Christ that are described, what he says that he has done, what he tells uh, the disciples of John to go back and say to John, it goes further than what Isaiah prophesied. It's greater. It's more complete. There is a wider range in view. You see, Isaiah didn't mention the leper. He didn't mention the devils being cast out. He didn't mention the dead being raised again. All of these go beyond the shadow of the prophecy. When the, when the true light comes, oh, how bright it is in comparison to all that has gone before. So the Savior then is recognized in the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. But he's also recognized by the demonstration of his power over nature. Now, by pointing to these supernatural miracles, there is a clear manifestation of power. The miracles are not unnatural. It's important to, to grasp that. The laws of nature are not suspended. Rather, the natures are supernatural. Think of it this way. Giving sight to the blind. Giving hearing to the deaf. Giving life to the dead, in essence, this is all about restoring nature. It's all about putting it back to how it ought to have been. When God created man, he wasn't designed to be blind. God didn't create man to be deaf. It wasn't natural for man to die in the original design of God. You see, all of these things are unnatural. We've never experienced anything else. But in the grand design of eternity, man was created to be whole, to be complete, to have everlasting life. So here what we have is Jesus manifesting his power to reverse the curse that came upon all of creation because of sin. They're not mentioned here in this text, but we know them. The other miracles that Jesus performed 
which show his power over the natural elements, calming storm, storms, walking on the water, weathering up a fig tree. I'm sure there's others you can think of. All of this taken together, it shows us this. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God, the creator of all things. He is the one who is able to put back what it, was, what it ought to be. He's the one who's able to restore the, the sight to the blind because he created sight. He's the one who gives life. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So we see it in the demonstrations of his power. But then we see the Saviour recognised by his preaching. In many ways, this is the most significant reason for the miracles. To confirm the word. We see that when uh, how Jesus gave that answer. He performs the miracles in the sight of those disciples. And then he says to them, in effect, I am the Messiah. It's the miracles that give authority to the word. The miracles, in one sense, don't say anything about themselves. Although they were good deeds. And the people here, they truly benefited from the healings. They benefited from the raisings from the dead. Yet their purpose was not simply, the purpose of the miracles was not simply to prolong natural life. All of these people went on to die. The primary purpose of the miracles performed by Jesus Christ was to stamp the authority of God on the preaching of Jesus Christ. It was his word that mattered. He came as the word. The word of God himself incarnate. He came to preach the gospel. We see it stated explicitly in Acts 2. We read there in verse 22, this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you. You see the point that's being made? By signs, what we're being pointed to is the fact that miracles, miracles are not simply uh, wondrous things. They're not simply there to tickle our curiosity and make us go, wow, that was impressive. No, the miracles are a sign. They point to something which has a significance far beyond themselves. Beyond the natural restoration of health. They speak of the authority and the power of the one performing the miracles. The word approved, when we read there in Acts that it was approved of God, it means to declare something or to show something. It has this underlying meaning of pointing away from everything else. So what the miracles then do is this. They point away from the sick. They point away from the blind and the lame. They point away from the dead and they point to Jesus Christ. They point towards the one performing the miracle and they tell us this man speaks with the authority of God himself. Nicodemus knew that. In John 3, he came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Oh, this evening then, the, the clear answer to the question, was Jesus the Messiah? Yes, Jesus was the Messiah. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ of God, the Saviour of the sinner. 
All that we know about Jesus Christ, all that has been revealed of him, all of it is pointing to him as being the one who can meet the sinner and every sinner at the point of their need. See, Christianity did not take root in this world and spread throughout the entire globe simply because of wonders, simply because of miracles. There are other wonderful things that are not true. There are other miracles, whether so-called or real, whether miracles of light or miracles of dark. There are miracles nonetheless that don't cause a religion to spring up in the way that Christianity has spread around the globe. Because these wonders do nothing other than this. They tell us that what Jesus said was authentic. It was the, the true, the living word of God. For the sinner in the meeting then, this is significant. Because there's much today that goes under this term Christianity that bears no resemblance at all to the actual teachings of Jesus Christ. Many see Christianity as a kind of movement that sets out to do good deeds. Maybe giving to charity or maybe volunteering in a soup kitchen. Visiting the elderly. Look, all these things are good things to do. And Christianity does indeed lead to a lot more of this kind of activity. But the purpose of the miracles was not to found a religion of good doing. That wasn't the point of the miracles. It wasn't simply an example to us that this is what we should have a religion that goes about trying to make blind people see. No, friends, that's not Christianity. Love for our neighbour is the outcome of Christianity, but it's not what it is. The purpose was to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the saviour from sin. That he has power over creation. That he has power to put right all that sin has destroyed and marred and polluted. (coughs) He fixes the problem of sin. The most Christian thing then we could say that you can do is to obey the teaching of Jesus Christ is to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as the apostles add, and thou shalt be saved. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that good deeds have no place in this world, and you will find, sinner friend tonight, if you come to Christ, your deeds will be better deeds. But it's the coming to Christ that Christ preached about. Here in Jesus' answer then, we see that the Saviour is recognised. But the other thing that we see in the description of these miracles and these works that are listed is that the sinner is rescued. The sinner is rescued. The remainder of the verse, it reads as this, What things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. Now we've considered how that the true purpose of these miracles was to point to Jesus as being the true Messiah, as fulfilling the prophecies, as having the power over sin and in preaching the truth of God. But the miracles themselves do also have a message about the sinner that goes beyond the immediate physical condition of the body. In Isaiah 35, where Christ is quoting from here. The 
Prophecy in Isaiah 35 is speaking of more than simply physical miracles. In that chapter, Isaiah is speaking of a day that can only be true of eternity, of heaven. He speaks of a highway that shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, no fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. You see, he's speaking of that final, that final day when Christ will come again, when the Messiah will not only have accomplished redemption, but brought in the fullness, the fullness of that accomplishment. Having it applied to the fullest extent to every one of the elect of God. So all that Isaiah speaks of when he talks about blind seeing, lame leaping, Oh, he's speaking of spiritual infirmities. Well, likewise, when Christ quotes that passage, he is thinking of more than the physical miracles. He's going beyond physical healings. And he is saying really this, these healings of spiritual infirmities point to the condition of the soul of the sinner. It's the healing of the soul that Jesus was holding up for John to see. It was solving the problem of sin that we considered last Lord's Day. The miracles then here mentioned have this significance in terms of Jesus' role as a saviour from sin. Let's take a look at each of them. We read that the blind see. Blindness. There's a clear representation in this of the sinner blinded by their sin. The word is itself related to a verb which means to raise a smoke. And the idea is this, there's nothing wrong with the eyes in a sense. It's not the eyes that are the problem. The eyes were created intact, we could say. Adam had 20-20 spiritual vision. But it was sin that raised the smoke. It's sin that mars the vision. It speaks of the spiritual blindness of the sinner. Although man created in the image of God with that full spiritual vision, that fall of man has led to the vision being marred, to the smoke of sin stinging the eyes. Sin is stated to be the cause of blindness in Zephaniah 1. And I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Spiritual blindness is a result of sin. Spiritual sight is now gone. It's impossible to see. The sinner is blind to their own condition. They're blind to their own blindness. They're blind to the problem. They're blind to the solution. But Jesus Christ, the Messiah, heals the blind. He gives sight to the blind, as we saw in verse 21. In other words, he gives a gracious gift of sight. An undeserved gift. Not through anything that sinner does himself. The sinner doesn't open his eyes. Christ opens his eyes. The sinner can't see, but Jesus gives him sight. But we see that the lame walk. And the word for lame, we have in view here those who have some kind of impaired gait. There's something wrong with how they walk, or they're not able to walk at all. And the idea is that sin has rendered the sinner impotent, unable to do anything to help themselves. We could say it like this, the sinner is not even able to come to Christ. 
There's an illustration of this very point in John 5 when Christ comes to the man who's waiting for the stirring of the waters that will give some form of healing. And Christ asks him if he's going to go down into the waters and the impotent man answered and said unto him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming another step of time before me. It's helplessness. It's the inability to move. It's being unable to do anything to save yourself. That's what's in view with this lameness. But helplessness is not the only uh, picture of the sinner we get from the lame. The idea of a halting or an imperfect gait, it speaks of the crooked ways of the sinner. Whenever they are able to walk after a fashion, they walk in all the wrong ways. As the apostle in Hebrews puts it, they have turned out of the way. And as a result, they're walking after the flesh and not after the spirit. But Jesus makes the lame to walk. Jesus makes straight the crooked path. He sets men on their feet and he puts them right. Or as Isaiah puts it, he makes them to leap as an heart. We see also that the lepers are cleansed. Now the affliction of leprosy was a serious problem in Bible times. The disease was then incurable by medical effort. It caused immense pain and suffering but although commonly thought of as a disease which is highly contagious it was not contagion that was the main problem with leprosy there really were two main problems with the disease the first is this it was chronic it was chronic it wasn't something you could sleep off and it was degenerative it was described by those in days gone by as the living death. Limbs gradually become unusable. The, the, the sufferer is slowly sinking down to death. Leprosy in the Old Testament times was the harbinger of death. It spoke of death. It screamed death at everyone who saw the leper. Under the Levitical law, the reaction of someone to becoming leprous was the same reaction as when they were mourning a death. Sackcloth and ashes was how they responded to this diagnosis. Likewise, when someone was cleansed of their leprosy, it was the same as those associated, the cleansing rites of the Levitical law were the same as those associated with touching a dead body, the washings and the sprinklings with hyssop and so on. But the other problem was not simply that it was chronic. It, it's that it was a ceremonial uncleanness. This was the much more serious problem. It was more serious than the physical deformity and pain. You see, people did not avoid the leper because they were scared of catching leprosy. They avoided the leper because the leper was entirely cut off from the camp of God. They were religiously excluded. The law of God said they were to be cut off, cast out. It was a complete separation. It was ceremonial uncleanness. You see, their leprous condition, it represented the sinful condition of fallen man. R.C. Trench, who 
speaks of the leper like this. He says, the leper, thus fearfully bearing about in the body the outward and visible tokens of sin in the soul, was treated throughout as a sinner, as one in whom sin had reached its climax, as dead in trespasses and sins. For the leper, they needed to be cleansed. There was a way for the cleansing. Healing was possible. But the key thing we notice from all that that we learn of it in the Old Testament is that that healing was not by medicine. It was not by any cure that we might know of today. The healing was a ceremonial healing. The cleansing was ceremonial. In other words, it, it was involved in the Old Testament rites and ceremonies that all pointed forwards to those spiritual rites of Christ. The leprosy then speaks to us of the clinginess of sin. It sticks and we can't get rid of it. Nothing we do seems to deal with it. It just gets worse and worse. Limb after limb decaying. And here we see that when Jesus was conducting his earthly ministry, he cleansed the leper. We read that the death here In this disability of deafness, we are confronted with the sinner's complete inability to hear the word of God. Hearing they hear not, our Saviour said in Matthew. And the tragedy of this infirmity of deafness, spiritual deafness, is this. That it is by the hearing of the word of God that sinners are healed. And the solution to their problem is in being able to hear. But sinners have shut out the hearing of the word of God. Their own sin has closed their ears. The den of the world around them. Their own unwillingness to hear that disobedience that we thought of last week. But Jesus makes the deaf to hear. Jesus makes the deaf to hear. We have an example of Jesus doing just that in Mark 7. There's a deaf man who's brought to Jesus in the middle of the crowd. We read there in verse 33 that Jesus took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into the ears. Jesus took the deaf man away from the din and the clamor of the world. There was only him and his maker. The deaf man stood face to face with his maker. And the one who created the soul, who gave life to that man, who breathed life into Adam in the garden, he puts his fingers in his ears and he makes the deaf to hear. He healed the unhearing ears. And we read of the dead being raised. And in this category of miracles, perhaps this is amongst the most incredible that one who is dead should be made alive again. There are only three examples in the life of Jesus of this happening that we're told of, specifically at least. That of Jairus' daughter. Well, she was only just dead. In the passage just before our text, we read it earlier, we had the, uh, the son of the widow of Nain. He was dead at least a day, probably not much more it being the day of his funeral. And we know of Lazarus, who had been dead four days. But in all of them, the dead person is representing to us this. It's the completeness, the totality, the finality of the sinner in their lost condition. 
They are dead in trespasses and sins. As Paul puts it in Ephesians. They cannot arise. They cannot speak. They cannot feel. They can't hear. They can't see. They are seemingly beyond the reach of all imploring, of all help. With all of the other ailments that we've thought of, there's a a vagueness, a fuzziness in the boundary between those who are healthy and those who are sick. We could say that there are degrees of each of those ailments. There's degrees of blindness. There's degrees of deafness. But when we come here to death, the emphasis that we have in front of us is that vast gulf that exists between the living and the dead. There is no degree of death. Death is absolute. And the sinner is dead spiritually. Absolutely dead spiritually. But Jesus Christ, the Messiah, raises the dead. The last thing we read of is, to the poor, the gospel is preached. There's a temptation to treat this differently, as though it were not a miracle. But friends, this evening, in one sense, this is the greatest miracle. That there was a gospel to be preached at all. That there was a message to be given to sinners that if they repent and believe in this Messiah, that they will be saved from their sin for all eternity. Oh, that's better than a physical resurrection. The word translated her, it literally means one who crouches. We're taking in our mind's eye to the beggar. One who is living entirely at the mercy of others. They're depending on handouts, on free alms from other people. They're destitute. They're unable to help themselves. In the context we have here then, the poor are those who have come to an end of themselves. They've run out of road. Probably to be true, they never had any road to start with. All the false, empty riches of their own efforts, of their own attempts to merit their own salvation, they've all come to nothing. In fact, it is only the spiritually poor that Christ has in view in all of this. Those who recognize that they have nothing. Those that know they're poor in spirit, they are empty. This is really the combination of all that has gone before. It's the summit of spiritual dearth. The poor that Jesus speaks of here are blind, are lame, are leprous, are deaf. They're dead in sins. They are spiritual paupers. But Jesus Christ makes spiritual paupers to be spiritual princes. Because he says, just back a chapter in Luke 6, verse 20, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. To the poor then the gospel is preached. What we are being brought this evening to see in this list of ailments, these diseases, these disabilities, in this death, what we're being brought to see is the abysmal state of the sinner, the spiritual poverty of the sinner. (coughs) Sinner in the gathering, you may not see yourself this way. You may resent the fact that you are described in such terms. But this is how the Bible describes you. Outside of Christ, you are dead in your sins. 
Maybe you think I don't see it that way. That's not how I view my life. I have happiness and joy and success. I have all that I want in life. I'm living a good life. I don't believe what you say, preacher. Friends, if you don't see it that way, that's because you are spiritually blind. You're proving your own condition. Maybe you hear what I'm saying, but you just don't get it. You don't want to get it. You don't like to think of such miserable things as sin. That's a word we don't use nowadays. Friends, if you just don't get it, if you just don't see what this means, if you're asking yourself, what is he talking about? Friends, you are spiritually deaf. It's sin that's clogged up your hearing. Maybe you've been trying to do it yourself, living a good life, being a good neighbour, a good wife, a good husband, a good mother or father, a good child, doing your bit for society, being an upstanding member of your community, trying all along to merit your own salvation, to prove to yourself, because no one else is watching, but to prove to yourself that you're essentially good. Or at least not as bad as others. But it's not working, friends, is it? If that's your experience tonight, it's not working because you're spiritually lame. Your gate is crooked. You're all going in the wrong direction. Or maybe your life is just simply a mess. Maybe you've tried sin. Maybe you've run after the pleasures. Maybe you've tried all the other ways of uh, being happy in this world. And you've reached the end of it all. And you're like the prodigal son at the end of himself. And the sin that you ran after no longer tastes sweet. Now it tastes bitter. Maybe now it has you in its grip of addiction. Maybe you've squandered it all. Degenerating. Getting worse day and day. Constant troubles. And the more you do to try and fix it, the worse it gets. Friends, you're spiritually decayed. You're the walking dead. The leprous. Whatever it is. Whatever your state. Whatever your case tonight. Whatever your answer to the gospel might be tonight. What you're being shown here. Is that you are completely and utterly dead in your sins. For you, there is no hope in and of yourself. You are beyond the help of man. You are beyond every human effort to resuscitate. <coughs> but that's not all we're shown. We're shown that for you, sinner friend, dead sinner friend, tonight there is a saviour from your sin. Jesus Christ is the one who can make the blind to see, the lame to walk. He can cleanse the leper, give hearing to the deaf. Yes, he can raise the dead. He can save the sinner. Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. He is the one who is to come. He has come. And tonight, friends, the poor have the gospel preached to them. For the child of God, maybe like John, you ask in eager anticipation when you read your Bible, when you come to the word of God, you ask, art thou he that should come? 
You in the past have seen the evidences of Christ. You've had your eyes opened, your ears opened. You've had your walk put straight. You've responded in faith to the word that you have heard Jesus preach. Then the answer that Jesus gives tonight to you is the same as the answer he gave to John. He is the Son of God. Let that confirm you in your faith. As Isaiah put it, let it strengthen your weak hands and confirm your feeble knees. Child of God, then, as you hear the gospel, never grow tired of it. Let it embolden you this evening as you face this unbelieving world. As we saw this morning, as you work for the cause of Christ among the living dead. Let this answer of the Lord encourage you in your labours. Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another. <coughs> Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Let's stand for prayer. <coughs> our Heavenly Father and our gracious God, we thank thee that there is a gospel. That there is good news for dead, filthy, wretched sinners, even this evening. We thank thee, O God, that there is a saviour from all sin, that there is one who has been sent to this world, one who was God, who is God, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet so condescended as to take upon himself our nature. O oh Lord in heaven, we pray that the gospel would open some heart, open some eyes, some ears. Give, Lord, the ability to leap and to jump. O oh Lord, the ability to praise thee with mouths that before were, were bound up and dumb. O oh, we pray for new life. Gracious God in heaven, wrestle with the sinner. Thou hast all power. Lord, thou art able to to do these things in a moment. Thou art able to do them irresistibly. And so, Lord, we pray that Thou would break down every barrier of futile resistance that the sinner might put up before Thee this evening and that Thou would draw them lovingly to Thyself. Show them, Lord, their lost estate. Show them that they have nowhere else to go. Thou art the one who has the words of everlasting life. And for thy people, confirm us in our faith, we pray. Strengthen us in our faith. Embolden us in the way. And, O oh Lord, we pray unto thee now that thou would go before us and bless us as we sing thy words as we close our service. Continue with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> now we'll turn for our closing psalm. To Psalm 146. Psalm 146. And we're going to sing from verse 5 to the end of this psalm. Psalm 146 from verse 5. Oh, happy is that man and blessed whom Jacob's God doth aid, whose hope upon the Lord doth rest and on his God is stayed. Who made the earth and heavens high, who made the swelling deep, and all that is within the same, who truth doth ever keep. Who righteous judgment executes for those oppressed that be, 
who to the hungry giveth food, God sets the prisoners free. <coughs> and so on to the end of the psalm. Psalm 146, singing from verse 5. Oh, happy is the man and... Sorry for that. Was there a different shade? Oh, happy...
stand, please, and we'll ask Reverend Farms to give the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. 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 There was, of course, 